Welcome to the Success Leaves Clues podcast with Robin Bailey and Al McDonald. Have you ever wondered what makes someone successful? What are they doing that's different? How do they achieve greatness? We believe that success leaves clues. In this series, we are interviewing very successful people from different walks of life to hear their stories. We'd like to remind our listeners that the views expressed in this podcast are those of our guests and not necessarily those shared by our hosts. Welcome back to the Success Leaves Clues podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Life and Legacy Advisory Group. Are you a small business owner who thinks they pay too much in taxes? We can help. Give us a call or book a meeting by clicking the link in the show notes to book a free financial consultation so you can have peace of mind about your financial future. We're also brought to you by ARIA Benefits. If you're a business leader challenged with talent attraction, employee engagement, or supporting mental health for your employees, we can help. Use your benefits package as a key to unlock your workforce. I'm your host, Robin Bailey, here with my co-host, Al McDonald. We're back in 2024. The year looks good. The future looks bright, as they say. Al, I know you've been out on your bike once, which is a record for you, yeah. but what are you saying these days? It's an early start this year because of the nice spring weather, but yeah, hopefully it'll continue along those paths and I can get a little bit more. And I do have to say, you know, I'm really looking forward to this episode because, you know, one of the things nice about the podcast, and I'm sure you concur with this, we get to meet a lot of new people that we would have met otherwise. But once in a while, as is today's case, we get to talk to someone that we have known for a while and find out a little bit more about them. And sometimes we learn some new things. So I'm actually pretty stoked about today's episode and today's guest. I am too. And so with no further ado, joining us today is Michael Smitchuk. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. I'm going to do a bit of a bio because I think a lot of what you do, if we just said, here's the law that Mike practices, people might have one thought, I went, oh, okay, that's what that kind of lawyer does. But as I've gotten to know your firm over the last couple of years, there's a lot more to it. So here we go. Mike is a lawyer and the founder of Smithchuck Injury Law, a law firm based in Toronto that is dedicated to helping injury and wrongful death victims. His firm also has offices in Simcoe and Brantford, Ontario. Mike has earned a reputation as a fierce advocate for victims inside and outside of the courtroom. Some notable achievements include the highest amount ever awarded by a court in Ontario for a wrongful death the only punitive damages award against a nursing home in Canadian history, as well as the only successful trial verdict against Corning Inc. in North American history for their hazardous visions courtwear line. In addition to achieving much-needed settlements and trial wins for his clients, Mike is strongly motivated by injustice and unfairness in our country, and he has sought to raise awareness about many important safety issues, such as the hidden dangers of wired glass, the unreasonable use of force by police, recent shootings and violence involving Airbnb rentals, and he has been an outspoken advocate for changes to be made in the mental health system in Ontario. When not in the courtroom or advocating for change, he spends his time with his wife and three boys traveling, coaching sports, and attempting to make his way around the golf course with our business partner, Joe Ferreira, once in a while. <laughs> Mike, welcome to the show. So glad to have you on. Thanks so much, guys. It's been a while. I've been dying to be part of this, so thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being a listener, and I'm so glad you agreed because we thought about this for a long time, and I kind of thought, ah, Mike's not going to want to do the podcast, and then Joe, our partner, convinced us to bring it up with you, and so I'm so glad you agreed. But I want to go back to, because success leaves clues. We're always interested in the entrepreneur, someone who starts their own business, why they do it, where it came from. You know, I've talked about it in the episode getting a paper route when I was 11 years old, and what Tony Robbins would call using your personal power, and 
my dad probably would have called it lying because I had to be 12 to get the paper route and I was 11. So I, you know, I used my personal power just to achieve that. But where did it come from back in the day? Were you, you know, a small child thinking, yes, that's what I want to do. I want to be a lawyer. Like, take us back and let us know how did you get to deciding where you were, starting with a firm, and then hanging out your own shingle and building your own? From the beginning, there were three things I think I really had an interest in as a young kid. I wanted to be a professional athlete, like many kids, you know, watching hockey, baseball. But I also was very, very interested in the law, like lawyers, lawyers you see on TV, LA Law, and, you know, all those cool shows that you could watch. But I was also equally interested in politics. And so I think it's not normal always that you are so interested in these things and that's the path you take. And so from the outset, it was one of those three things and pretty quick. Uh, if you've seen my golf game, you know, it was pretty clear to me, I'm not going to be a pro golfer or a pro baseball player. So I turned my attention to law and politics and just my interest kept growing in the law. John Grisham, everyone's familiar with all his great novels, followed those, a few good men, the courtroom scenes, it really stoked my interest in the law. But at the same time, I had that equal interest in politics. I like to say now I'm apolitical. I like to criticize all governments, but I really had an interest in both of those. And eventually, as time went on, I applied to a graduate program in political science and also to law school. And I can tell you honestly, guys, that I would have been equally happy going either way. I got into law school and then went from there. So, Mike, when you come out of law school and you start looking around, how did you end up in the area of law that you ended up to? Was there an attraction to get into that, as we said in your bio, you know, fighting against injustices? Like, where does that come from? From an early age, I was always interested in injustice. It always irked me when someone seemed to be wronged. That's why I like politics as well, because you could stand up for, you know, the little guy by being their advocate and their politician. I hated bullies growing up as a kid, and that just continued as I went along. So I started off in a firm that did all areas of law, and I thought that is a great way to start off just to make sure you sort of know the area of law you want to go into. So the firm I was at, we did corporate commercial, we did real estate, we did personal injury, we did criminal law. And pretty quickly, I determined that personal injury and wrongful death cases were my cup of tea. What I liked about it was you're helping the little guy. We're always helping individuals. We don't really work with corporations. We work with individuals in their darkest hour. You know, they've been a victim of some kind of injustice or negligence. They're not working. They need all the help they can get. And so that really caught my attention that I can work day in, day out, helping the little guy, helping them in their darkest hour. And it just took off from there. So my interest became very clear that I love that area of the law. Another thing about it is you don't just deal with doctors or you don't deal with one area, you deal with engineers, you deal with doctors who deal with forensics and pathologists. It's really an interesting area, you deal with accountants on the financial side. So it just went from there. And right from the beginning, I was interested in this area of the law. Mike, were you ever bullied? <laughs> no, thankfully, no. Okay. I saw others who were bullied and I like to think that like I always stood up for them and tried to help them. But Personally, no, I didn't experience that. The reason I ask is it's a theme that I've seen come out through, you know, whatever it is, 170 episodes that we've done, because we're always meeting with high achievers. And it struck me that there's a high number of them, myself included, who were bullied at some point in their life. 
And that's the reason I asked, because you had talked about you didn't like seeing the bully. And that's part of the reason why you wanted to stick up for the little guy, as it were. And I've shared it on the podcast before. I remember, I think it was in middle school and a kid, and he was known as the toughest kid in the school. And I remember him telling me he was going to break my wrist if I got off the bus a stop too soon. And that's when I had gone into martial arts. And I think that's where personally my own tenacity comes from, you know, kind of the F you, no one's going to bully me. And because I feel that same way as you do, like I want to protect people. I want to help them as much as possible. But that theme of being bullied and, and kind of saying, well, no one's going to do that to me anymore. And I'm going to show you sort of thing. And you're on the other side of that, which I really like as well. So I'd like to think that if you were on that bus with me, you would have stuck up for me at the time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I wasn't always the greatest at the physical side of things, but on the, you know, using my brain and using words, that's where I think I found my sweet spot in terms of helping others. So you mentioned, you know, a lot of the situations that you deal with, and we've talked a little bit, they can be, well, dark a little bit, some pretty serious situations where things have happened. And again, it's great that from your perspective, you're advocating for them and everything. But in terms of personally, like how do you deal with, because you're dealing with a lot of serious injury, death, kind of the dark end of the spectrum, like what effect does that have on you and how do you deal with it? That's a great question. And it really hits you when you start your career. So I've been doing this now for just over 25 years and all I've ever done is personal injury and wrongful death. So I, like you name a situation, I have seen a case that involves that situation, anything. And so when I started out, I will say I was paranoid walking down the street. I would be thinking that something's going to fall on me or someone's going to hit me or just because we see those types of cases day in, day out. And that was rough. Like I tell you, and then when I first had a kid thinking about, oh, now he's going to be vulnerable to this. But quickly, I learned that we're seeing the one-offs. We're not seeing this isn't happening to everyone every day. We're seeing the worst of the worst that doesn't really happen that often. And so with time, I'll still call it that paranoia diminished, but you're quite right. We deal with, on an ongoing basis, people who have been killed in horrific circumstances. We're dealing with their loved ones. We see very traumatic photographs often involving death or really serious injury. And it's just something over time, I think you become accustomed to, sadly, you have to, I think, and it may not be the best thing to do, but you have to compartmentalize what you're dealing with. You have to be that objective one. At the same time, one of the things I learned early on, they say you can't be emotionally involved in your cases because you have to be the objective lawyer. And so you can't get personally invested in the case. And I just think that's wrong because we help people for many years. These cases take a long time. We help them in their darkest hours and you become close with them. It becomes personal. Now, having said that, I'm still objective. I can still take a step back. But when you see these people, what they've been through often, we meet them soon after a horrific incident, you really do take it personal and you really do want to help that family. So it's sort of transition over time from that paranoia to maybe harnessing what's happened to help the person. Do you think what you just said about maybe not putting that emotion aside You've been successful. We talked about some of the cases that you've had. Do you think maybe that's a part of what's made you successful is maybe that's something a little bit different that you bring to the table that others don't? I think you've nailed it. I think it has helped a great deal. So we do trials. We do jury trials that can go on for four, five, six weeks, and you have to prepare for months in advance. So you're really putting your personal life on hold. But 
you can do that when it is personal and you want to help this family and you want to help the individuals because you know them so well. So you're able to harness how you feel and turn that into a positive for them and for advocating on their behalf. I would imagine, you know, if you're seeing this day in and day out, and I think it's fine that you compartmentalize it, but I have to imagine you take that home, you want to leave that at the office, but, you know, inevitably that seeps into you going home and you're thinking about something and then obviously your, your wife is asking you, hey, what's wrong? And maybe you carry that. Are there things that you've learned to do over the years, whether it's journaling or sports or whatever it happens to be, to make sure, yes, you're looking after these people and, and a theme that I'm getting from knowing you over the years and even just chatting further here is you want to help the little guy and help that person. But at the same time, you're not going to be able to, unless you're looking after yourself physically and mentally. Are there things that you've learned to do to make sure that, Hey, when I'm with my family, I can leave this and not internalize it and then have it affect you and manifest itself in ways that are going to damage you. Yeah. Coaching sports. That has been one of the best things that I've done in my career and being very involved with my kids and I'll, I'll tell you a story. So we had a six-week trial in London, so London, Ontario, and I would commute every day from Toronto. So some people thought, well, you know, what are you doing that for? You're driving four hours, two hours there and back. Why are you doing that? And the other lawyers on the other side stayed in London for six weeks, maybe longer, with their client. And I just noticed during the trial, they seemed to be down. They weren't going home. They weren't seeing their kids. They didn't have an outlet. They were always spending time with their client, a corporate client. Whereas I would go home and I would go immediately to the baseball field and I would coach and I'd see the kids goofing around and all this stuff. And my mind would just not even think about the case while it was going on for those two hours or three hours. So that outlet, and I've done that consistently, has been extremely helpful to decompress at the end of the day. Yeah, I think it's really important to share things like that. Like the very first episode of this series, Vince Danielson, it's the reason why we continued this series. He shared, you know, the clue, as it were, that he practices 10, 10, and 10 every day. So the moment he wakes up, 10 minutes of journaling, 10 minutes of practicing gratitude, and 10 minutes of meditation. And I share that because I know when we do episodes like this, I'll always get the DMs from entrepreneurs, business owners, CEOs saying, Ask that question more and find out what other people are doing so I can get a clue of something that might work for me because we're all in that same boat. We're high achievers. There's a lot of stress. And unless you have those outlets, that energy's got to go somewhere. And Al and I have talked about this at like his Zen time is when he's on his bike. My Zen time is when I'm in my basement gym all alone listening to a podcast. But that's an outlet. And I think whatever that happens to be, it's really important to have that. So I'm glad you're able to share that. And it sounds like you get a lot of joy from coaching. And, and obviously, you're giving back to other kids as well. The other thing is seeing what can happen to a family in an instant and how things can change. You don't take things for granted. Like I see how things can turn on a dime right? Someone's life is going perfectly one day and the next day, the worst circumstances. So what that does for me is when I go home, I truly, truly appreciate that family time. And I don't take these relationships for granted that they're always going to be there. They're always, the next day is going to be the same because I know that it might not be. And so it, it's really helped from that perspective to live more for today. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because I was talking to Joe about that yesterday about not taking people in your life for granted. Because as you know, Mike, with my brother, he was there one day and gone the next, you know, age 59 and just gone like that. On a more fun note, I've always wanted to ask you this and never had the opportunity. <laughs> one of my favorite series ever on Netflix was Suits. 
how accurate are they, whether it's law and order or suits? I mean, how real life versus what they show on TV? <laughs> What's your take on that? Is it anything close to what you see in the movies or is that just complete fantasy? Well, they're much better looking than I am, that's for sure. So as a starting point. And interestingly enough, there's a spinoff. I'm not sure if you're aware. It's going to be the L.A. version of Suits coming out. Oh, interesting. Different characters? Like, is Harvey in it? Different characters. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're going to work in, I think, the old guys. Harvey and Mike? Yeah. Oh, I love that show. Yeah. So, yeah, people always ask that. Is it like that? And it's not, especially in shows where there's a criminal case and you see the crime committed, the investigation the trial all within, it seems like in a matter of three weeks, that's not how the law moves. The law is a very slow moving thing, especially on the civil side. So criminal side, if you're charged with a criminal offense, you have a right to a speedy trial. So you will have a trial within you know, a year and a half, let's say. On the civil side, there's no guarantee of a speedy trial. So the difference between TV shows and movies and reality is that our cases, they can go on four years, six years, eight years, depending on how things go. The reality is our court system is extremely backlogged and it's really tough to get trial dates. It's really tough to push a case forward. They will push them for criminal cases, like I said, but not civil. So timing is a definite difference when you watch Suits. Although I will say a lot of the stories that you see on Suits or other uh, TV shows are real life stories that they're using. Like I can go on and on and tell you the craziest stories ever. Like you would never imagine that this goes on and it easily can be in a movie or a TV show. It's a great series. So I'm looking forward to the LA version when that comes out because I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I'll tell you one story. It would be perfect for that. And you can edit this if you want. So it's about a case I didn't take. And we get a call one day and this lady is very upset. And the lady says, you know, I want to sue my psychologist. Okay, tell me what happened. The lady, as it turns out, was married and she liked to have a lot of relationships with a lot of men, like she couldn't help herself. She had a condition, a situation. So no matter what, she couldn't help herself. So she has all these relationships with different guys, goes to a psychologist and says, I want to stop doing this, help me. So the doctor or the psychologist says, I want you to write a letter to your husband explaining why you do this. So she does. She writes a letter and it's part of the therapy. But the lady brings in the letter in an envelope addressed to her husband with the address on it to the psychologist's office and says the doctor wanted me to give this to her. And the doctor's not there. The receptionist takes that envelope, puts a stamp on it, and mails it to the husband. And in that letter were the everything that this lady had ever done to every guy, just in great detail about what she did. So the husband gets the letter. Of course, they get divorced. She wanted to sue the psychologist. We didn't take that one on because our view was that relationship was doomed regardless of that letter. At some point, he would have found out. But those are the sorts of interesting, I will say, cases that sometimes come to us. That would make a great episode to watch on Netflix. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you probably have a whole uh, journal full of those. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mike, can you talk a little bit, uh, maybe switch gears a little bit in terms of You've had a successful practice. You've been running it for a number of years. We've talked about the law part. A lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs, they're CEOs. Talk maybe a little bit about the business part. Like that's got to be a challenging part as well. It's great to study law, but you're running a business as well. Talk about some of the challenges that you have around that. Yeah, extremely challenging. In law school, 
I think they're getting a little better at this, but in law school, when I went, they don't teach you anything about running a legal practice. Like I mean, zero. They teach you the law, all the fundamentals that you have to have, but there is nothing about this is how you get a case. This is how you pay the bills. This is how you run your practice. So it was a big shock when I decided to set up my own shop. I did it within two years after being called to the bar. So I worked for a very good firm, learned a lot. And then within two years, I always wanted to set up my own shop, set it up. But what a learning curve from getting a, a line of credit. We operate on a contingency basis. So we're like one of those bad CP24 commercials that you don't pay unless we get you money. So that means that we're deferring our fees until the end of a case. So we have to carry those expenses for quite some time. So the first thing I learned is I need a good line of credit to help finance it. I need good investment assistance. And that's where I found you guys, life and legacy. I need benefits for my staff. And that's where you guys came in as well. That was so crucial to have great advisors like you guys. And that's why I'm, I'm so glad. And I thank you guys for that over the years. My dad, he has an MBA, he's an engineer. And he said, it's all about cash flow, Mike. That's what it's about. And I laughed. I said, like, I have no business background at this time. And I said, oh, wow, that MBA really did serve you well. That's your advice. It's about cash flow. I, I didn't understand what he was talking about. And boy, did I quickly <laughs> understand what he was talking about. It is about cash flow. So just as I went along, really learned doing it and learned from people like you guys, burned and learned. A big difficulty I had was with human resources on how to deal with hiring people, how to deal with firing them. And I will to this day say the most difficult thing I've ever done is fire someone. It makes me sick having to do that. And thankfully we haven't had to deal with that for many years now. So these are all things they never taught you in law school. I didn't have any training and really learned it on the job. Well, I'm glad you shared that. And it, you made some great points there, especially around HR. I think we hear that and we see that ourselves, good people are the key to every good business, right? If you have good people around you, they make your job a whole lot easier and vice versa. If you could give one tip to someone that wants to start their own firm, is there one piece of advice you could give them? Having an office manager as quickly as you can get one is a good move. So my brother, I brought him in. Yeah, you have a good one. He is good. He's excellent. <laughs> and I tell you, that takes a load off of what I have to do because I'm also, you know, I'm the rainmaker. I'm the one working on the cases. We now have a staff of about 25 people. So it's, it keeps growing. But having a good office manager, someone who can help with all those different aspects, really takes the stress and the load off of me. So I would say that's one of the biggest things. That's really good advice because Al and I have talked about that at length together and with Joe. That is something we wish we did much sooner in the business, get HR support and people that could look after the people that we needed. Really, really good advice. I was hoping to find out a little more about what your practice looks like today. Because during COVID, us included, everybody's working from home at that time. Then we made the decision, I don't know, how many months ago, Al? Six months, let's say, that we were going to go hybrid. So we're in the office three days a week. And for a lot of reasons, I think that's working out really, really well. But we were chatting with a client earlier this week where they got rid of their office and they're going remote. What does it look like for you today, Mike, in terms of are you all back in the office? Are you doing hybrid? And what are the reasons behind that? Yeah, we're exactly like you guys. We're hybrid. We're three days in the office, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Mondays and Fridays work from home. You have the option to be in the office and there is no way that we'll ever go to a full work from home system. The reason is the collaboration that we have when everyone's in the office, it's buzzing and 
we work on cases where we need to brainstorm and okay, how are we going to present this evidence? What are we going to do here? And that collaboration, like you can do it over Zoom, that's fine. But we all go into our boardroom, someone prints off photographs and this and look at this and we can do many focus groups. So it's really, really important for us to have that personal interaction in what we do because there is so much brainstorming. The courts, I will give Doug Downey, who's the Attorney General of Ontario, again, I'm apolitical, but I will give credit where it's due that during COVID, he really modernized the legal system in Ontario, where we would drive to London, let's say, for a pretrial, which will last an hour. Now we do that over Zoom. So it saves everyone the travel costs. It saves our clients money if you're paying by the hour, which ours don't, but it saves so much time and stress. I did a trial online with, uh, you can only do that when it's a judge alone. And that's great for witnesses. They don't have to wait in the courtroom. They can be in their office or at home. So kudos to the attorney general because the legal system really was in the dark ages before COVID and now has really moved forward. But in terms of our practice now, we've got an AI committee where we're taking advantage of all the you know artificial intelligence. We're really trying to keep up with all the latest advances that can really help. So we're really focused on technology now. That was my next question, because when you hear about AI and everyone saying it's going to replace this and this job and this job, do you ever see a time in the near future where AI is going to replace lawyers or law firms? Or will this, to your point, will this just be the smart law firms are the ones that are going to embrace and leverage AI and move forward? And the ones who don't might not be here down the road. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think we're going to embrace it. We're going to leverage it, but it won't replace trial lawyers, exactly what we do. It can't replace an advocate like that in-person communication in court. Like it just won't be able to replace that. I can see it, you know, maybe replacing some jobs on the research side of things where even now we say, okay, here's our issue. Can you go and search for cases that involve this issue? And then eventually you get a memo. Now you can input that question and it spits it out really quick. Having said that, it's not as creative as we can be, right? The artificial intelligence can only sort of talk about what's happened in the past and go over those cases. So it will replace, I think, some core research that needs to be done, but it won't replace the innovation and the creativity that I think only a human mind can bring to it. Yeah. And I think the people who are out there embracing AI and leaning into it are the ones that are going to succeed. We're doing the same things. I just want to go back to something that you said, because it resonated with me and it's what I'm seeing in the office. I actually fought Al a little bit on the three days a week at first, because I love being remote. I feel very productive when I'm remote. But because we have a number of young people on our staff now, and I see the collaboration, and while Stephanie could easily hit me up on Teams and ask me something that she needs to ask me, but it's an extra step. Whereas when I'm in the office, she's popping down for coffee, popping into my office. So I see that happening more and more. So I just have a feeling that even companies that said, well, during the pandemic, let's go fully remote. I think we're going to see more and more companies come back to the office because I remember going down to Toronto during the pandemic and I parked under City Hall and it was such an eerie feeling because that, you know, that that parking lot's always packed empty. and it was yeah. empty Huge. and there was all these empty office spaces. So I think we're going to see a return to that now because I think people are realizing much as you have and we have that collaboration Although it can still happen, it's not as natural as when you're in an environment together. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. 
Yeah, I think you're right. It's forced when you're online, whereas you walk to the kitchen and, hey, I got a question for you. And exactly. You just miss out on that if you're not in person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think too, you know, you spend five days sitting in your little cubby hole at home and you're not with people. After a while, you start to get lonely a little bit, honestly. Like, you know, you've got your family around, you do, but it's talking with other people and other people have different ideas and they look at it differently. And when you're in the office again, you get that. You don't get that when you're sitting in your little cubby hole at home. And I think that makes a difference too. For sure. Well, when you walk into our office, you never feel lonely because Joe pretty oh. much hugs everyone that walks into the office, <laughs> whether they like it or not. I mean, he just loves welcoming people into the office. So that's why we oh, put yeah. them right near the door. Exactly. <laughs> Well, it's my favorite time of the podcast where Al asks his signature question, and I'm very curious to see what Mike has to say about it. So, Al, I'll let you take it away. All right, Mike, do you know what's coming? No. No? Okay. All right. Well, the question is this. A society grows great when old persons plant trees in whose shade they will never sit. So can you talk about any of those proverbial trees that you might be planting? Well, you know what? I'm extremely proud of the advances we've made in the law that help not just our client for that case, but for everyone that follows. And one of the cases that I'm most, it just warms my heart every time I think about it. It's such a tragedy, but out of that tragedy has come change and it's helping other families. A 24 year old lady was killed in a fire and the landlord had all these things that were wrong with the place, bars on the windows and so forth. And the parents, they said, listen, we want change to be made to rooming houses in Toronto. We want changes to be made to make places safer for people that rent basement apartments. And we want the law to advance in terms of how they compensate individuals who have been killed or their families. And so they said, we are going to go through a trial no matter what. And nobody, like very few people will have the courage to do that and relive their darkest moment. I mean, this was as dark as it got. And as a result of that, the jury awarded record numbers for a wrongful death. The CBC, the national, covered the case across the country and exposed you know, the issue about rooming houses and fire safety. And the Court of Appeal upheld our trial win, and now it's the highest amount awarded in Ontario history for a wrongful death. But what that does, it's a precedent. So now every wrongful death starts with our case. And it was because of the courage that these parents had that this happened. And so I can't think of a better example of planting that tree and then this result. Yeah, I'm glad you shared that. I remember you talking about that case. And even obviously, I'm nowhere as close as attached to it as you are. But just when you were talking about it originally, it's pretty tragic. And so it's it's obviously great that you've, again, you're the advocate sticking up for the little guy and making some changes. So appreciate that. Yeah. And one thing I'll say about it, just one other thing is speaking of a tree, there was this favorite tree that Alicia had in High Park. And she would go there with her mom. She would go there with her dad. And so there's this beautiful photo of Alicia with her parents next to that tree in High Park. And as part of our presentation to the jury, it was a jury trial. We had that picture. And then obviously she died. And we removed her slowly from the picture. So it was just her parents by the tree. And that was so powerful. And I think it resonated. It was so sad, mm. but really drove the point home of what their loss was. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing with us, Mike. As I said, we've known you for quite a few years, you know, friends of the practice, obviously, and your office manager, Keith, we know quite well as well. So a shout out to Keith. 
But I think this has been very beneficial for our listeners. So thank you so much for sharing your story and being open to sharing some things that are great, maybe not so great about the practice of the people that you're helping. What's the best way for people to reach out to you if they have questions about yourself or what you're doing at your law firm? Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me and thank you for all your help over the years. You guys have been instrumental with that administrative side that we were talking about with investments and with benefits. So thank you guys. I can be reached on LinkedIn. I've got a profile there and just search my name and I can reach there. And you can also Google us. We're all over the web. Perfect. Well, that does it for today's episode. We really enjoyed this conversation. As always, we hope you did too. If you have any questions for Al or myself, please feel free to give us a call or rejoin the conversation on LinkedIn. Success leaves clues, my friends. We'll see you next time.